As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? We'll either figure out if the health of humankind can be improved to the point that we could keep people in sort of a 30 to 40 year old state almost forever yeah but i use that word very very you know indefinitely or for a very long period of time or if there are still so many things we don't understand about the biology that we can just slow down the clock but we can't reverse it Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And this week, we're going to shift gears because, of course, last week we talked about designer babies. This week, living forever-ish. So, on the program, we have James, I'm going to say this wrong, probably Pyre. P-E-Y-E-R, payer, perhaps. He's a stem cell biologist and co-founder of Cambrian Biopharma, whose last name I should have asked how you pronounce it before I got on this podcast. My bad. And Cambrian is a longevity-focused biotech kind of holding company that last month raised $100 bucks to make some very big bets on treatments and medicines that James reckons will completely change what it means to age. You guys will find this fascinating, trust me. So before we get into the conversation, just to give you a bit of context, the core idea here upon which kind of Cambrian is founded is that age itself is a disease that can be treated like any other. We've talked about this kind of concept before with other guests we've had on here like Laura Deming and others, but um, just as a refresher, the idea, uh, this idea was not long ago seen as kind of crazy or fringe, certainly in kind of academic scientific circles. But it's really gained traction in recent years as more and more research has been done into kind of the underlying biological processes of aging, specifically the idea that, say, Alzheimer's may share some of the same biological mechanisms that drive heart disease or arthritis or these other kind of what we call the diseases of aging. And that the reasons our bodies break down can be boiled down to a handful of these processes. And if we can zero in on those and basically create pills, treatments, therapies, whatever, for those mechanisms, maybe all of a sudden getting old is a completely different kettle of fish, as they say. Maybe it doesn't suck. Maybe it doesn't hurt. Maybe your mind stays sharp, or your body doesn't lose muscle, or you don't develop arthritis. And of course, maybe you live a lot lot longer. So it's a big idea, obviously, and and James has taken some very big swings here, and obviously he now has some serious financial heft behind him to do just that. So we talk about how he's approaching this, how he kind of came to it, and why now is the time to really dive in and invest in this idea that age and aging doesn't necessarily have to be what we have grown up to think that it is. So that is today's show, so I will now hand it over to my conversation with James Pyre? Payer. I'm sorry, James. Of Cambrian Biopharma. Enjoy. First of all, thank you for taking the time. Being here on Danny in the Valley. From Where are you calling in from? So I'm in... New York right now. So our right. offices are in uh, yeah in Soho in Manhattan. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. So before we got on, um, you were asking kind of how I became interested in this whole field. So when I, I've been back here in the Bay Area, I was living in London for many years. And one of the th- kind of 
initial stories I was working on when I moved out here to cover all things tech was longevity and kind of all the very interesting and exciting things that were happening there. You know, I know a lot of people who are taking metformin and doing the whole, all of the stuff, you know, self-measurement and taking the stuff off label and very interested and enthused by this idea of life extension. And so over the years I've talked to and had on this podcast, lots of people like Laura Deming, she's been on a couple times of the Longevity Fund. We had Aubrey de Grey, we had Ned David. And so it's just, you know, the idea of living much, much longer and doing so importantly in a healthier fashion is something that I just think is, you know, inherently super interesting. We definitely agree on that point. <laughs> yeah. And then um, we've also had Christian Angermeyer on this pod a couple times. Oh, okay. And Christian, for those who don't remember, he runs, I can never say it right, Apiron. It's Apiron. 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 Investments, yeah. a big investor in psychedelics and, and Compass and London, et cetera. And when he came on a few years ago, it was the first podcast he'd ever done, apparently. And so I've been following his whole investment kind of path, really just diving deep into psychedelics. And then I saw he was involved with what you guys were doing. And then I saw you guys raised $100 million. And I was like, oh, this is kind of an intersection of a lot of different themes and people that I kind of have known and come across over the years. So that's why I reached out. <laughs> that's a, that's a long, long answer to a short question. Cool. Well, I'm glad you did. I actually didn't know Christian was on the pod. But yes, he's the co-founder yeah. with me of the company that I run, Cambrian. I think the best sort of topic sentence, I don't know if you guys talked about it when he was here, but the way that he's articulated his life's mission to me, right? Because he's been a successful investor for years now. And then he kind of realized that he was at a point where he was like, okay, now what do I really care about? Well, how about making people live happy and healthy as long as possible? Right. And I think the whole mental health psychedelics thing, that's kind of the happy part of that equation. And the healthy as long as possible stuff, that's kind of my job. That's the longevity side of things. Right. And I think it's a it's a great sort of unifying thesis of how to have, do good to the world. Well, so that's super interesting, right? So could you just give it like high level, what is Cambrian and, and your structure in itself is a bit different so if you could explain that as well, and then we can kind of dive into some, some more specifics. So the simple version of this is that Cambrian is a pharma company, but it's a pharma company that's not just developing one drug. It's developing a whole bunch of drugs that have been independently discovered through hmm. breakthroughs that have happened all over the world. And so we've raised a whole pile of capital and have like an, a research and development team, folks that have built a whole bunch of drugs before, folks that have built private equity companies, folks that have, you know, launched drugs onto the market, kind of all held at the Cambrian level. And then we partner with individual researchers mm. at universities. And we have more than a dozen of these that are now set up at different research universities all over the world where we form little subsidiaries mm. uh, that are small biotech companies that we work together with these scientists that have made a breakthrough to bring that discovery, which all of the you know dozen plus discoveries under Cambrian are drugs that have the potential to slow down the aging process and extend yeah. human health span, right? And we work with those folks to figure out how to get those new therapeutics into patients doing clinical trials as quickly as possible. And so that's sort of what Cambrian is. Our structure is a little bit different than a standard biotech company in some ways because we want to be bigger and take more shots on goal. And also that scale allows us to think a lot more long term. Because mm. the, the big challenge to me in this longevity space is that if you really want to do it right, you can't just be around, let's say, like a VC fund who wants to make an investment and then be cashed out with their exit in five years, maybe seven years, yeah. right? We need to be able to say, all right, we're going to get involved with this breakthrough and be able to follow it for 10 years or more so that we can make it through multiple stages of that breakthrough's development until it's being used post-clinical trials to be keeping people healthier longer as a preventative. Right. And so so that's the setup. In an ideal world, what is the kind of the goal, the realistic goal? And I don't know if there's like, you know, how best to answer that. But like, are we talking many, many decades, 
I've talked to some people who are like, well, the human body is just like a car. You just replace the parts that go bad when they go bad and you can kind of live forever. So from where you sit today, you know, you're on this cold face of actually really hard science trying to develop new drugs that target these kind of age drivers of age related disease. What do you think, based on what we know today, what is possible? So I get asked the variations of that what is possible question. I'm sure. A lot. You know, sometimes it, it sounds a little bit like, how long do you want to live? Yeah. You know, how long do you think we can live this kind of stuff? And and I think that there's just no real good answer to that question specifically. So I'll I'll answer it in two ways that hopefully aren't dodging your question. The first is the way that I always respond to that, like, how long do you want to live? What do you think is possible question? Which is, I think at least for me and most people I know, we want to live at least until tomorrow. And then we'll let you know if that ever changes, right? <laughs> as long as we can continue marching forward day after day, healthy and happy and wanting to keep living, like that's a good situation to be in. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's almost like a moral principle of mine to maximize the number of days that that can remain true. Yeah. And so without saying it's going to be 100, it's going to be 150, whatever. But then to get more to the technical side of, of what's possible, mm. I'm going to take more of a near-term view, which is in the next one to two decades, it's extremely realistic for us to take all of the breakthroughs that have happened in this aging biology space and get the first drugs, and I don't know if it's going to be one or if it's going to be 10, but the first drugs approved for human use that someone who is healthy, right, who is not sick, takes these drugs prescribed to them by a doctor to prevent cancer, Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, muscle weakness, osteoporosis, all at the same time, right? Right. A kind of quote unquote magic pill, an aging prophylactic. Yes, exactly. So it's a prophylactic and in so doing, if that pill extends healthy human lifespan by just three years, hmm. right, that three years of extension actually will do more to add additional years of, of quality human life than a cure for cancer. Right? If we right. cured cancer, it would extend human lifespan by, by just under three years. And so I think that what we will find is that the first incremental gains that we get from the first longevity drugs are going to unleash an absolute torrent of new innovation. And so you get kind of the first discoveries that might extend lifespan by three years, and then that will lead to the next ones and the next ones that are already kind of in the hopper that might be able to do better and better and better. And I don't know what the maximum will be, but I've seen a parallel in drug development in the past, which is what we saw with HIV drugs mm. in the 90s, right? For some people who are who contracted HIV in the 90s, their diagnosis would have been a death sentence. Totally. But then the first kind of bad antiretroviral drugs came out, and that kind of got them far enough with all of this research that was happening to get to the next generation and the next generation. And now someone who contracts HIV, they can actually live a quite long and somewhat normal life thanks yeah. to the quality of the drugs that exist. And I see it being kind of similar of what we're going to see in longevity in the next couple decades. Right. And so I don't know where that will end up, but I know it's going to be better than where we are now. And that's exciting enough on its own. Right. Before getting to the specifics, because I have lots of questions around the specifics, especially when we're talking about kind of the overall approach, which I think is interesting. Could we go back to when you were in short pants? <laughs> sure. So like, where did you grow up? Like, how did you come to this? You know, where did you kind of grow up? Where did you study, et cetera? Yeah, yeah. So I guess the quick biographical details is that I, I grew up in a wonderful family in the Midwest. I was born in Wisconsin, right on Lake Michigan, and grew up in Indiana, then did my undergraduate in Chicago and my graduate studies starting in Michigan and finished them in Texas. But I spent the first 20 plus years of my life just bouncing around Lake Michigan in the Midwest. Right, right. And I kind of came to this idea of focusing on longevity quite early in my life. Because you had a PhD, correct? That's right. Yeah. So I did a PhD in immunology with a focus on stem cell biology. Okay. But I decided to work on longevity actually when I was still in high school. In high school? Yeah. So I was 15. And I guess without going too sappy on you here, you know, as I was brought up, my grandfather 
was sort of the guy that was held up to me as like, this is what success in life looks like, right? Yeah. Served his country for more than 20 years in the military, successful in business, first person in his family to go to college, like raised two kids to be doctors, just like everything that's kind of says life well lived was embodied for me in this guy. Okay. And when I was in high school, he got cancer. And it turned out to spread to a malignant state really quickly, metastasized, and ultimately killed him over the course of about a year and a half. Mm. And as I watched not just the failure of the existing treatments that we had for his cancer, but also the absolute pain and suffering that was a part of dying, I was like, what greater thing could I spend my life working on than these diseases, which are how almost all of us are going to end up going, yeah. even though we don't like to think of it. And so I started getting really interested first in cancer, and then that interest spread to longevity generally when I realized that the only way to ever create a good cancer drug would not be to try to fight it, but to try to prevent it. And I think that by exploiting the discoveries we've made on the biology of aging, that's how we're going to create cancer preventatives as well as Alzheimer's, heart disease, and all of these other major things that we die of, preventatives for those diseases too. And so one or both of your parents are doctors? Yeah. So my dad's a surgeon and my mom's a nurse. Oh, wow. uh, they met each other when my mom was my dad's boss at Northwestern. <laughs> and so to get into like the approach, I mean, one of the things that I found interesting kind of as I've dug into this whole longevity space is kind of realizing that working on longevity itself is kind of new. It's usually, as you say, it's like, well, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to work on cancer research, or I'm going to go be an, as you say, an immunologist or a pulmonologist or some kind of specialism. But the idea of approaching age itself as a thing, as almost like a disease to be cured, that is new, no? Absolutely. And I would say like, there have been some folks around who have been thinking about it this way for a really long time, yeah. right? Some of my friends like Nir Barzilai, David Sinclair, yeah. like David started thinking about aging as something you could affect really early on yeah. in his career as a, as a researcher. But like when I started my work in stem cell biology, I was really explicitly told, okay, James, you might be interested in this whole aging stuff, but like never mention that again. Right. And it's only been, I would say in the last seven or eight years that longevity has become a respectable thing to be studying as an academic career simply because we've hit this point where the amount of scientific data supporting the hypothesis that like the rate of aging is changeable and that all of these diseases can be prevented with shared mechanisms mm. that that's just almost irrefutable as a as a hypothesis right now the, the data behind it is so good and i think that's what's led to so many more researchers moving into this space, which in turn has led to the blossoming of this industry that's making drugs based on all of these new discoveries. And those new discoveries are coming up, you know, just in the last three or four years where it's really hitting its stride. And I know there's been lots of bits and pieces, different research that has been done, but what is the piece of research, if there is one that made people kind of stop me like, oh, wait a minute, maybe we should be approaching this or thinking about this in a different way? You know, like so much in science, it's so incremental. Mm. Like you mentioned before, there was the stuff with metformin and rapamycin, which were the first two pharmaceutical compounds that extended healthy lifespan in mice. You know, you could go back even further to like 1993 when Cynthia Kenyon genetically modified worms to live twice as long as they could otherwise would otherwise have lived just by changing one gene. To me, though, Actually, the starting gun for this field came not from a scientific discovery, but from something more strategic and organizational. So if you look at longevity in the aughts, right, between about 2003 and 2012, mm. the academic field was primarily concerned with answering the question, what is the one thing responsible for aging? Is it our mitochondria? Is it our telomeres? Is it our sirtuins? Is it our, you know, uh, our free radical levels? All of these sorts of things. Is it just DNA damage? And in 2013, a whole group of those folks got together and they wrote a review article 
that's called The Hallmarks of Aging, which was almost like a sort of kiss and make up and like hammer out our differences type of thing, because the evidence was showing that it wasn't just one thing that caused aging. It was a whole series of things that contributed to it that were all interrelated in complex ways. And after this whole field sat down and said, hey, it's not just my thing. It's the thing that you're studying too that's also important. And the thing that you're studying and you and you, that sort of created this unified field that all wanted to get to the bottom of this thing we call aging. And instead of fighting with each other, they started making progress together. And that was really a step change in the field. And so it's funny for an idea like that or a, a transition of ideas to be catalytic. But I think in this field, it absolutely was. And so going to like the kind of core thesis of Cambrian, how are you approaching it? I mean, because obviously this is, as you say, there's a multiple potential drivers of aging and aging related diseases. How do you zero in on, you know, like, what is your approach? How do you kind of focus your efforts? Because it feels like it's almost like, how long is a piece of string type of question? Yeah. <laughs> so I think that we have two parts to the answer. One is almost kind of like the incoming part, which mm -hmm. is like, how do we choose which academic or scientific breakthroughs to work on and spend our time, energy, and money on to try to turn those into human drugs. And then there's kind of the second part, which is how do we do that? Like, how do you actually build a drug that is a quote unquote longevity therapeutic? In regards to the what we look at, in some ways, building on that paper about all of the different things that go wrong with aging from eight years ago, that's been kind of updated and expanded since then. And so we have 13 different mechanisms things that go wrong with our cells, our tissues, or even at the molecular level as we age that are sort of topic areas that we say, hey, if we can figure out ways to change these things, repair that damage as it's happening in our bodies, that would be a worthwhile drug to develop. And so we have a really complicated process for taking one of those discoveries when it's made and determining whether or not it could become a human therapeutic. Right. You know, and we don't have to go into the, the details there, but like it's a little bit like doing due diligence if you're a VC investor, right? Where we say, okay, well, it has to have this and this and this, and the science has to be this good and all of that kind of stuff. But then the second part of this that I also I think is just as important is that it used to be that no investors would ever put money into longevity drugs because you can't run a clinical trial for aging. Exactly. So I was like, it makes me think of like the metformin thing. And I spoke to the guys, I think it was at the Buck Institute, they were trying to get this like $70 million, or maybe it was somebody else. The Astera thing? Well, it's a clinical trial to to prove that metformin in humans actually slows aging. Yeah, so that's the TAME trial. You're probably thinking of near Barzillai from Albert Einstein. Exactly. So I thought that was really interesting because metformin is this old drug that's been around for decades. It's used in diabetes, et cetera. And then it's shown some promising results, and I think it's mice. And then so they're like, well, we need $70 million to run this really robust human clinical trial to show that this actually targets aging. And it's been really, or sorry, slows aging, or I think it slows rather than reverses. And they've had a really hard time raising the money, partly because, one, it's a, this is a drug that's out of, you know, it's past its patent protections. And also the FDA, as far as I understand, they haven't created age as an indication that you can target. So yeah, it's really interesting. Nir and I have talked about this a fair amount, and he and I are actually on the same side of the table, I think, of this argument. I don't want to put words in his mouth, so I'll just sort of give my view, which is I actually think that you know, aging as a disease idea, the fact that the FDA hasn't called aging a disease, actually doesn't matter. Right. Right. So the FDA actually gave the TAME trial a thumbs up mm. in the end of 2015. And so so we've had a green light to go to test if metformin could slow down aging in a really good clinical trial for quite a long time. The challenge is that nobody makes money out of this trial. It's hard to do. $70 million is an awful lot of money. And the federal government didn't step up to put that money you know, that money at risk to kind of benefit people. I just find that whole concept, though, bamboozling when you have like some of these billionaires who are very, very, very concentrated on longevity. 70 million is like what they would find down back, you know, in their seat cushions. So 
it's interesting. That's only starting to become the case in the last year or two. What? The fact that because like even billionaires yeah. who find you know seventy million in their seat cushion, <laughs> I, I've talked with a number of these guys. They're incredibly smart and thoughtful For in sure. what sort of things they deploy their capital into. And even if it's philanthropically, yeah. you know, they don't want to make a decision where that whatever it is, seventy million dollars comes to naught. And so. I think the maturity of this space has accelerated so dramatically that those kinds of numbers are really starting to be thrown around in the longevity field for the first time in the last year or so. And it yeah. wouldn't surprise me at all if you know we heard the announcement that this TAME trial has gotten funded in the relatively near future. But Do you know something? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Attack in the way that we move things ahead in, in this aging field, which is, you know, you take a drug like metformin, yeah. which is a generic drug, it's off patent, super cheap, and it's just like, okay, let's go figure out how we can slow aging in older people. We take a really different approach, which is, okay, we've made a new breakthrough and it targets some fundamental process that changes as we age. What we do is we first ask, all right, in what disease? is that particular process sent dramatically out of whack, right? Right, And then we figure out, okay, could this be a treatment for that disease that actually performs better than the existing treatments that we have today? And then you can run shorter term clinical trials showing safety and efficacy for that drug in a framework that looks a lot like a normal biotech company. And normal biotech companies are really good investment vehicles. So we find a disease where we can show safety and efficacy for these drugs that we think can slow down aging. And then once you have safety and efficacy, then you can go straight with a drug that already has a dramatic amount of value, right? Because these patented drugs that could be treatments for some disease, those are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. For sure. And then all of a sudden saying like, oh, hey, we can turn something that's worth hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars. And for a you know, a fraction, let's say it's 70 million, right? And for an additional 70 million at risk, we can take this patented safe and effective drug and see if it can also be a preventative. And doing it that way, I think makes a lot of sense. So is what you're working on then basically repurposing existing drugs toward different aging processes? No. So that's not what Cambrian does. Yeah. We take brand new drugs yeah, right, right. that were discovered to slow aging, and then we launch them to first treat disease and then prevent disease afterwards. And is that just because the regulatory process is more straightforward? Exactly. Not because aging is not declared a disease, yeah. but because 
doing a clinical trial to show that something is preventative is inherently hard. We all saw this in the in the vaccine world, right? Yeah. Like in order to do good vaccination trials, you had to have tens of thousands of people sign up for those trials in order to see the effect. And it's not that different for any other type of preventative if we want to use this tool, right, the placebo-controlled clinical trial, to determine if a thing works or not. And so if you're going to run one of these big trials, being damn sure that your drug is at least safe and effective mm. and targeting the mechanism you want to start target with it, that's, I think, the the sort of base case starting point that you have to get to with a new drug. Right, right. And then you can broaden it after it's approved and on the market. Exactly. Got you. And can you give us an example of one of the, because, you know, everybody kind of knows what it means to get old. Your bones get more brittle. You you lose muscle mass. Maybe your memory gets a bit foggy. Maybe you develop some kind of ailment, severe or less severe, whatever. But when you talk about the processes of aging and things that kind of going out of control and the things you're talking about targeting, can you give an example so people can kind of understand what do you mean? Sure. So a lot of aging drugs like metformin or rapamycin, which also extends lifespan, they target these sort of nebulous mechanistic processes at like the core of the functions of how our cells metabolize nutrients. Right. Right. And so I think it's really hard to sort of grok how for someone who doesn't intimately know the details of how cell biology works to kind of grok how that rolls up. So I'm going to give sort of a different example, which is okay. one of our programs that's not about the core cell biology, but is actually, I think, more tangible. So one of the things that goes wrong as we age is that our muscles get weaker, yep. right? Our muscles just stop functioning as well as they used to. And it's called sarcopenia in old people age-related muscle weakness. And so a group out of Johns Hopkins that's led by this collaborator of ours, Gapseng Lee, mm -hmm. figured out how to take blood cells, turn them into stem cells through this process called induced pluripotent stem cell manufacturing that was discovered more than a decade ago. Guy won the Nobel Prize for it. Yeah. And then this group at Hopkins figured out how to take those cells and turn them into the stem cells that make new muscle. Mm. And so he teamed up with an entrepreneurial guy named Doug Falk, who is also kind of in the Hopkins ecosystem, and the, they've now joined as part of Cambrian to turn that into a drug company. And so we have this process where we can take blood from a person and then turn it into stem cells, turn it into muscle stem cells, and put those muscle stem cells back into a person to rebuild broken muscle. Hmm. And so the way that this is going to end up entering the clinic is we identified a particular muscular dystrophy, so a, a genetic muscle disease that affects children. And we're going to try to use this process to create new muscles for those children with those rare diseases first. And then if that works, we have ways where we think we can make this widely available to people whose muscles are declining as they age and be able to come in and kind of supercharge people's muscles with brand new, healthy, youthful muscle stem cells to reverse age-related sarcopenia. So there's going to be a whole world of like buff grandpas, just like. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so it's interesting. Short version, yes. A long version, we don't know, you know, whether you can actually like juice up those muscles, yeah. but we do have a really good sense that we can replace non-functional muscle mm. with functional muscle. And that would be able to theoretically take that as, again, as like a prophylactic, I don't know, on your 60th birthday. Exactly. Let's say you, you end up you're 60, 65, something like that, and you just kind of start the process of slowly replacing these muscle stem cells with fresh new ones on a, you know, a regular cadence. And we don't know if it's every five years or every 20 years to remain really strong. But I think that that sort of theory with the stepping stone of rare disease first, show that it works, and yeah. then you know, get it to the point where it could be used in everyone – that's kind of the dynamic that Cambrian works on with all of our therapies. The one that I just described has some special challenges because cell therapies are very expensive. So this is that's like our only cell therapy. Most of the drugs we work on are small molecules, so they're extremely cheap right out the gate. But the the philosophy behind it is is the same. Got you. And this is a uh, this podcast we always are talking to startup founders. So. I'm curious, when did you decide actually to start a company and how did the pitching process go? Because again, it's a, as you say, it's a relatively 
new field. It's a different approach. And $100 million is a lot of money. So I followed, I mean, I'm sure most startup founders that you talk to say the same thing, but I followed kind of a weird path to get to Cambrian because I actually managed a VC fund before I became a startup founder. Got you. And so, so after my PhD, I worked as a consultant for drug development companies. And that's kind of where I hit upon this idea of, oh, hey, the aging or longevity field was mature enough to make this transition into real drug development and great biotech programs. And I started talking to some of my friends about it and ended up launching a VC firm with a couple of successful tech entrepreneurs in Germany. Mm. And ran that fund, which is called Apollo Ventures, for three years. They actually just announced a new fund, a $180 million fund this morning. Oh, wow. And so for three years, I, I ran that with those guys. We made a couple of investments where I was both kind of the executive and the investor behind those companies. And I started thinking more and more about, all right, the VC model wasn't the right way that I wanted to spend building these assets. And, you know, I was CEO of three small companies in this space and had raised money for that before. And I was like, okay, we want to do something bigger and longer term. And so I kind of stepped back from my my role at the VC fund. And then I was already in this really wonderful position where the longevity space was just starting to kind of come to its own. And there weren't that many folks who had started and raised money already for companies in this space. And that's how I eventually got recommended to meet up with Christian Angermeyer. And Christian and I sat down and within a few hours, we were like, okay, this is your life's mission. This is my life's mission. We should do something together. And yeah, we've been able to put together in just two years more than $160 million for drugs in this space through a series of rounds for Cambrian. And I would say funding and fundraising has not been the problem for us Mm. simply because we assign the whole value of this longevity hypothesis, right? The fact that we might be able to make a drug that prevents multiple diseases and all of this. We assign the value of that that we ask investors to pay for to zero. We say, look, we're a biotech company. We're making drugs for this rare disease, like this muscular dystrophy or arthritis or whatever it is. So what would you pay for a drug that was developing a drug for that disease? And then that longevity thing, all upside for right, all of us. Right, at right, the end. right, right, right. And I think that philosophy has made it a lot easier to raise capital. And is it institutions? Is it family offices? Is it uh, wealthy individuals? I mean, is that what is the kind of the makeup of your investors? It's kind of a combination of the above. We've had the incredible luxury of choosing our partners mm. for the whole time that we've been building Cambrian. And where we have been airing, because this is a long term project, is people who can stick with the effort, not just because they want to see, you know, the bump when we get our first drugs approved or the first clinical trials to happen or, you know, to go from a private to a public transition, right? We want someone who's like, okay, well, we're in for the long haul and want to see you guys really make these drugs work through the first clinical trials and then on into the the aging indications. And so that's ended up being family offices, high net worth investors, but also some really special VC funds that are equipped to think on really long-term timescales. Right, right. And so in terms of those 13 different kind of areas or kind of research teams, if you will, in terms of the timeline of development, are there one or two or three that are kind of the first that'll be kind of coming through the process, the development process? So yes, the way that Cambrian is set up, I I think of it almost as like finding these breakthroughs and then you plant a seed, right? Because drug development just takes so long. Usually by the time that something becomes a Cambrian program, the researchers that made the discovery have already been working on that for five to 10 years. Yeah. And then from the time that we start, let's say that there's already like a compound that can extend the healthy lifespan of mice. From that stage to get to a drug that's ready to go into humans is another between two and four years right. to you know make sure it's going to work. And so we try to plant between five and eight of these seeds every year. And then they mature kind of in classes almost, right? And so our first class of new drugs is going to be maturing in late 22, early 23. And when you say maturing, does that mean phase one clinical trials or? That's right. Entering human 
clinical trials for the first time. But re- you know, really, that's the middle of the journey, or maybe the end of the beginning kind of thing, yeah. right? But they'll be maturing out of the preclinical stage into the clinical stages in that kind of end of 22, beginning of 23 timeframe. And we expect to have between three and five drugs in the clinic at that stage targeting different aspects of aging. And what are those, that first class? What is the kind of range of things that they're targeting? So it's interesting. As much as I would love to talk about this, we've been intentionally very stealthy about all of the things that we're working on because the space is quite small Mm. and there's not a lot of upside for us to kind of trumpet the exact mechanisms of what we are working on until we are way ahead of the rest of the world. Right. And so over the next year or so, we're going to make a whole series of announcements about who our partners are and what these things, you know, what diseases we're going after. But right now, the part of the reason I told you the story about this Johns Hopkins group is that Vita, our partners at Hopkins, are actually the only partnership that we've announced so far. Right, 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 right. Out of, yeah, what are now 17. Right. Why do you call it Cambrian? So I love archaeology and geology. And so I call the company Cambrian for two reasons. The first is, so Cambrian was kind of, in some ways, the dawn of animal life as we know it, right? There were sponges and stuff before, but in this really short period at the start of the Cambrian era, which about 550 million years ago, there was this explosion of diversification where evolution did some really weird things. Evolution tried a lot of ideas that ended up not working and some like eyes and legs that were really good ideas and have stuck with us all in this really compressed period. The Cambrian explosion. Sort of inspired by the Cambrian explosion that we could set up a company that could afford to take risks and try wacky things Mm. with the hopes that we would find a way of learning so rapidly from both our failures and from our successes that we could make incredible progress in a short period of time by having the scale and the ambition to be risky. So that's number one. And then there's like the the hidden reason that I love about naming the company Cambrian is that there's this great quote that you have to go pretty far forward in evolutionary time to find the first authentic corpse. Because we all think of aging as something that is just completely programmed into us and totally natural, right? But do bacteria age? right? Did early single-celled life, like what does aging mean to a single-celled organism that divides symmetrically and goes on you know, living with its elf and its daughter cells forever? You actually need this thing called the disposable soma, basically separate germ cells and body cells. And the body is just like a temporary vessel to reproduce the, the germ cells in order for aging to even mean anything. And so it's you know, life started more than 3 billion years ago, mm-hmm. and it's not until about 500 million years ago in the Cambrian era that we have the first evidence of, so to say, corpses and age-related diseases. There are trilobite fossils that have tumors embedded oh. in, in between the plates of the fossils. And so like that's the oldest evidence we have of these age-related diseases. Right. So the Cambrian explosion wasn't all good. Well, you know, I would say that aging wasn't an invention of evolution. It was a consequence of evolution, which I think is an important distinction because it's not like we're programmed to die. It's that we're programmed to only live successfully for about 40 to 50 years. And after that, evolution just didn't care. And that actually makes our job a lot easier. 40 to 50 years? Because I'm 44. Okay. So... So the reason that I say that is not like, okay, well, you know, we made it to whatever, 40, 50, 60, and then like we shut down and die. It's just that until we're about 50, evolution does a pretty good job of keeping the things that make a person together. Yeah. And after about 50, it's kind of apparent to us that a lot of our systems were not designed to stay in good shape this long. And From an evolutionary perspective, the rationale for that is really easy to understand, right? There weren't that many 60-year-olds having kids in evolutionary time, and therefore there just wasn't that pressure. And so we have a period of good health that evolution selected for, and then a period of declining health that evolution didn't select for. And so we have kind of a template of, okay, well, we know what it's kind of what it takes to stay in good health. So how can we keep those processes 
that are keeping us in good health throughout our 30s and 40s in place into our 50s, 60s, and 70s. Right. And so is the idea then, I'd be curious to get your view, the stuff you're working on now of actually extending healthy life. So not like, you know, oh, great, I live to 90, but I'm bedridden. But actually, I live to 90, and I'm still playing tennis, and I like my muscles work and all that kind of stuff. Do you think that is a just a natural consequence of our evolution as sentient, intelligent beings? Interesting. Now we're getting, we're almost getting, <laughs> that's almost getting away from the science and onto the philosophical side yeah. of it, right? The scientific answer is that this idea of prioritizing health span over lifespan, I think is the only way to approach this field. For sure. That if you just focus on lifespan, you're not really doing anyone any good. No. And if you focus on health span, you may get extra lifespan out of it. But even if you don't, you're doing good every step of the way because health span is what we actually care about. Yes. On the philosophical side, Man, we could have a longer conversation about this, but but you know, and and I almost have to say like there's a personal view and a Cambrian yeah. view here. Uh, or there's not really a Cambrian view, so I can only give you my yeah. my personal view, which is like I think that as humans, we are extremely good at focusing on where the biggest sources of suffering to our civilization arise from, and figuring out how to beat that back, and so. You know, a hundred years ago, we didn't even die of aging. Yeah. Generally, we yeah. people did, of course, right? Cancers and and heart attacks have been around forever, but it wasn't the major killer of humankind. The major killer was infectious diseases, right? Yep. Tuberculosis, influenza, these kind of things. And so, it's only been for about seventy-five years that these diseases of aging have been the primary predators of humankind. And so you know, of our 100,000 year plus history as a species. And so I think that where we are at with technology maturing dramatically and our, our understanding of biology growing so fast is that we're in the spot where we are rapidly zeroing in on what our biggest predators are, these diseases of aging, and figuring out how to beat them back. And once we beat back these diseases, you know, something new will emerge that will become the biggest cause of human suffering, whatever that is. And then as a society, as a culture, we will focus in on fighting that thing. And so I think it almost is, I'm not going to say it's like evolutionary programming, but like as a technological culture, I think that we do a really good job of identifying those problems and trying to push forward on that. Right. So it's kind of along a continuum of like, you know, the same continuum that we have vaccines that mean that nobody's dying of polio or whatever it may be now. Exactly. And in fact, I think that the parallels there run extremely deep because prior to the invention of vaccines and antibiotics, the way that those diseases were treated were primarily symptomatically, right? People would get sick and then doctors would try to react to it, you know, by bleeding or giving tonics or herbs or whatever it was. And then after we understood the mechanisms that were underlying those diseases, then we were able to rationally design these tools to fight the thing that caused the disease instead of reacting to it. And I think that instead of saying, oh, hey, you have cancer, let's figure out how to fight that cancer, the rational approach is, okay, what causes cancer? Where does it come from? And how do we make sure that it has a very low probability of happening? And if we start taking that kind of vaccine and antibiotic inspired approach to the overall strategy to approaching these diseases of aging, you end up with the longevity field. That's really interesting. So I have one last question. I'll let you go. So I'm 44. It's 2021. So let's, uh, this is a completely selfish question, which I recognize. <laughs> so let's go to 2050. So I'll be in my seventies, God willing. Not necessarily based on what you're working on, but you're obviously deep in this field. You've seen the advances. How different does the kind of longevity look then from what it is today? Or, or you know, is there is there a discernible difference based on the things just that you know that are happening and are, that people are working on and researching and developing? So I think a 70-year-old in 2050 is dramatically different than a 70-year-old in 2020. Hmm. And in fact, I expect a 70-year-old in 2050 is going to be a lot more like a 55 to 60-year-old in 2020 because of the breakthroughs that are going to happen. This is just, of course, you know, broad strokes sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. hand-waving. And I think that 
the couple of pieces leading into that will be number one, around the 2030s is when we're going to have the first major uptake yeah. of these drugs being used. But you're not going to see dramatic effects on overall you know, population or maximum lifespan or things like that for decades following those things. And so we'll have these first drugs. We'll be able to measure that they're working by seeing people get stronger and you know, not get diseases and these sorts of things, and then make new drugs and new drugs. And there'll be an explosion of new capital and innovation kind of pouring into this field throughout the, the 2030s. And then in the 2040s, you know, that's when we'll, the rubber will really hit the road in some ways, because we'll either figure out if the health of humankind can be improved to the point that we could keep people in sort of a 30 to 40-year-old state almost forever. Yeah. But I use that word very, very, you know, indefinitely or for a very long period of time. Or if there are still so many things we don't understand about the biology that we can just slow down the clock, but we can't reverse it. Right. And that I think will be kind of a 2040s question. So by 2050s, there's kind of these diverging paths that either will have dramatic human rejuvenation, or I think the downside case is, you know, slowing of the human aging process that will keep 70-year-olds much more healthy than they are today, but not be completely rejuvenated to like a 30-year-old. So 70 will be the new 60. I will. T I would take that. <laughs> yeah, I think we can. I think we by 2050, I think we can do better yeah. than 70 is the new 60. I'm really hoping it's going to be more like 70 is the new 50. Right. But we'll see how we're doing. Amen to that. Well, I wish you all the luck. We like to have people back on every now and then just to check in. So obviously, you're working on very long lead times, but um, let's definitely uh, revisit as things develop. But um, yeah, I wish you luck for everybody. <laughs> Thanks so much, Danny. Yeah, I'd be happy to come back. This has been a really fun conversation. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank James for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening and for rating and for reviewing the podcast and for the create, you know, the ACAST creator tips always appreciated. And for, of course, telling the most important people in your life every day, what a wonderful podcast this is and urging them to listen. Cause I know that's what you guys all, all are doing. So thanks for that. That's it for me uh, this week. As ever, you can find me in the paper at thetimes.co.uk. You can find me on the Twitters at Danny Fortson. You can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. I will be back with another week. We'll probably do two more episodes, and then we'll probably take a little Christmas vacay, like maybe a week, maybe two at most, um, depending on how it kind of works out. But um, we've still got at least another couple for you coming, and they're going to be good. Trust me. So anyhow, that is it. Have a fabulous weekend. We'll talk to you next week. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.